Our sermon today is taken from John 12, verse 13 to 19. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Grace. Guys, we're going to continue in our series through the book of John. And just to give us a GPS of where we are in the book is that we're over halfway in the book of John. And throughout the whole book, we see Jesus continually preaching the gospel, that he is the only way to God, that there's salvation found nowhere else, only in and through him. And we see also throughout the book that the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees continues to increase, almost reaching to a climactic point soon to come, which is the cross, where Jesus uh, uh, will accomplish his redemption plan, but also where the Pharisees uh, plan to wrongly defame and kill Jesus unjustly. Now, a huge event that prompted this plan to kill Jesus is something that's alluded in our text. It's a miracle that Jesus performed, you see that in verse 17 to 18, of raising Lazarus up from the grave, right? Which by doing so, Jesus validates his claim as God in flesh, as the one who has come to redeem us. And if you look at verses 17 to 18, it tells us why the large crowd is there. The crowd is there to see this Jesus. Who is this God that claims to be God, that claims to be Redeemer, that claims to be the Messiah, He's raised Lazarus from the dead. Perhaps he really is the Messiah. Perhaps this is true. Perhaps his gospel is true. But also another reason of why the large crowd was there is because we're told in chapter 11, one chapter before chapter 12, that the Passover celebration is approaching. Now this detail is really important. The Passover celebration is a huge festival that happens once a year where Israelites will all come together and would commemorate their liberation from the Egyptian captivity in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, the Old Testament. They've been doing that every year. So imagine, put yourself in the scene. The Israelites, who by the way at the time were under the Roman captivity, they're about to celebrate an annual festival and be reminded of the freedom from the old Egyptian captivity, right, under the Roman captivity. And here comes along Jesus, the one who claims to be the Redeemer, the one that claims to save his people, and he just raised somebody from the dead, by the way. I mean, what are the Jews meant to think? This is it. This is the king who will come, who will liberate us, who will vindicate us from these Roman oppressors. Finally, we'll be free. Finally, all the wrongs that has been done to us in our lifetime will be made right. Now, yes, they were right in thinking that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah who will vindicate and redeem his people, but they were utterly wrong 
in the way in which he would do that. And this, this is what this passage is about. God's method of vindication. God's method of making right all the wrongs. That's been done to you, to me, to his people. And if we actually see it, it'll be unbelievably profound. It'll shape the way we live our lives as those who are in Christ. It'll shape the way we respond and interact with people. And it'll give us the power to remain faithful to him and remain loving to others, even when the whole world seems to be against us, even when there seems to be no hope for vindication. Three things I want to point out. Our longing for our vindication, our role in our vindication, and the assurance of our vindication. Our longing for our vindication, our role in our vindication, and the assurance of our vindication. Point one, our longing for our vindication. To be, to be vindicated means to be made right. Now, yes, God's vindication for his people includes making right the wrongs that we have committed, making right the wrongs and the sins that we have done unto others. But we know that's not all that we long for, is it? What our hearts really long for and what the gospel does offer is to be vindicated not only of the wrongs that we have done to others, but also of the wrongs that has been done to us. We want that. And it's not bad to want that. It's not wrong to want that. It's not selfish to want that. Look at the cry for vindication that the psalmist evokes all throughout the Psalter. What does he want vindication for? Not only that God would make right the sins that he's committed to others, but many, if not most of his cries to God in the Psalms was actually about God making right the wrongs that others have done to him. Look at Psalm 109. Uh, verses 1 to 2 and verse 21. The psalmist says, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Not only is it okay to want that, but God himself says he will right all the wrongs that's been done to his people. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. When we think of all the wrongs that's happened in the world, we think of all the wrongs that's been done to us in the past, perhaps the wrongs that are being committed to us right now whether small or big, and we want justice. We want vindication. And that's exactly what the crowd in our passage here also wanted, vindication. Look at how they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now let's feel the weight of this scene. When we think large crowd, we maybe think a couple thousand, maybe at most 10, 20,000. But in year 66 AD, way long after this event, a Roman historian named Josephus recorded the attendance of a particular Passover celebration that happened that year. And the attendance he recorded was up to 6.7 million people. To give a more vivid image, remember if you were here in Jakarta during the Ahok protests in 2017, the highest approximation of people that were there was about 200,000, and that's, that's high. So imagine 13 times that amount of people. This was a revolt waiting to happen. 
And what were these people doing? They welcomed Jesus with palm tree branches. This is also really significant because nowhere in the Old Testament has it ever been recorded that the Passover feast has anything to do with palm tree branches. No one used that as a part of the Passover feast all throughout the Old Testament. So why do the Israelites do it here? Well, in 160 to 170 BC, a Jewish military leader named Simon the Maccabee successfully freed Israel from the Syrian invaders. This was years before this event we're reading now in our, in our Bible. And guess what the Israelites did to celebrate Simon's victory of the Syrian invaders? They tore off a bunch of palm tree branches who has leaves on the end of it, and they waved it as Simon the Maccabee proceeded into the city and the country that he just liberated. So there's a mix here between the Passover and the sign that Simon the Maccabee, uh, uh, or the, passion, the desire they have to be freed as Simon the Maccabee freed Israelites from past tyranny. This is important because it shows us the expectation that the crowd had on Jesus. By waving these palm tree branches, what does this tell us? What do they want Jesus to be? They wanted Jesus to be a modern-day Simon the Maccabee. You see? They wanted him to be a modern military leader that would free them, not from Egypt, which is what the Passover symbolizes, not from Syria, which is what the palm tree branches symbolizes, but from the current oppressors, who? The Romans. They wanted Jesus to do to the current Roman invaders, what Simon the Maccabee did to the ancient Syrian invaders. Not only did they wave palm tree branches, but in verse 13, they cried out to Jesus, Hosanna. This is taken from a phrase in Psalm chapter 118, verse 25. It's Anna Adonai Hoshiana. Anna Adonai Hoshiana literally means, please, Lord, save us. Save us. In other words, please, Lord. Vindicate us. Don't you see what's happening to us? Make it right. Do you not see the Romans, Lord, and all the kinds of oppressions they're doing? Or maybe for us today, do you not see my friends, Lord, and all the gossips they're spreading? Or do you not see these corrupt politicians, Lord, and all the nation's money that they're stealing? Or do you not see my business competitors, Lord, and all the cheating they're committing? Or do you not see my family members, Lord, and all the backstabbing they're doing? Is not this the cry of the crowd? Is not this the cry of our hearts? Make it right. Vindicate me. Do we not long for this? Now, again, it's not wrong to want it. God himself promised it. The problem isn't that we want it. The problem is that we end up taking matters into our own hands. When someone wrongs us, is it not so easy to disregard God's call to love others in our lives and take justice into our own hands? Is it not easy to fall into self-vindication? Now, most of us have been to church long enough to know better than to just flat out resort to violence and slander. Our version of self-vindication might be more subtle, it might, uh, but it's still self-indication nonetheless. We, we won't outright slander people, but we'll ignore them just enough to where we know it hurts. We won't flat out attack them, but we'll avoid them in such a way to where we know it pains them. 
We won't outright humiliate them, but we have no problem subtly guilting and shaming them. You see, it might look more tame, but it's still just a more churchy version of self-vindication, still wanting to take justice into our own hands. Look, here's a problem with the worldview of self-vindication. One, it's exhausting. It's tiring, isn't it? Wanting to always vindicate every wrong that's ever been committed to you. Do you know how many more times you'll be wronged in life? Do you know how many more times you'll be misunderstood or thought the worst of? Do you know how many more times you'll be subject to ill gossip? So many more times. Do you know how many more times you'll be in a situation where you actually did no wrong, but then you'll exit out of the situation as if you're the bad guy? It'll happen so many more times. And if we don't learn how to have peace during those situations, life will be unbelievably tiring. Because we'll be incredibly busy trying to make sure that we're always vindicated. Two, if vindication is up to us, it may lead to hopelessness. Because at some point we'll realize there are just some wrongs. There are just some injustices done to us that we don't have power to make right. No matter how hard you think about it, no matter how hard you try and find a way for justice to be served, the other person in power is just too strong. They got too many things going on for them, and there's no way that in our own strength we can self-vindicate ourselves. We can right this wrong. You've ever been in a situation like that? If you haven't, it's really easy to think that'll never happen to you. But just try and talk to somebody in which that has happened to and you'll see it happens much easier and much more often than you think. Three, we'll end up being overbearing. You know some people, and I, I notice this in me too, kind of this angry streak where, where, where we always need to make sure people get where we're coming from. And we just absolutely can't stand being misunderstood. We can't be at rest until everyone gets it. I, I struggle with this. Just ask my wife. Why, why do I struggle with this? Because I believe that my vindication ultimately rests on me. It's up to me to vindicate myself. And when I do this, I can't love people well. I can't obey Jesus' command to love those who persecute me. Not that my wife is persecuting me. I'm just talking about in general out there. <laughs> why? Because I'm too busy vindicating myself from them. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to want to, be, to want to be understood. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to seek justice in this lifetime. It's right. It's good. It means you have a sense of dignity. But if you don't have the assurance that the Bible is saying, that Jesus in our passage here is promising, of him being the one that will bring total and utter vindication to his people, your pursuit of justice will be marked by exhaustion. You'll be overbearing and we, when you see no hope for justice, you might even come to despair. But Jesus here tells a Christian of a hope that we have, a hope that will give us the power and drive to have peace and to love others and to be faithful to God, even in the midst of all kinds of wrongs being committed to us. Let's go to our second point. Our role in our vindication. Let's take a look at Jesus' response to the crowd, uh, to the crowd's cheers in verse 14 to 15. The crowd was cheering on him, expecting for Jesus to come and vindicate them from the Roman, uh, Roman uh, Empire. Verse 14 to 15, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this may seem like a weird response, but back then, when kings have conquered a particular region in the ancient Near East, they'd enter into a city on a donkey. Donkeys represented victory, kingliness, authority. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, saying what to his people? Vindication will happen. Victory will be had. God will bring about right from all the wrongs done to him and to his people. But in a way that is utterly and opposite to the world's view of vindication. Unexpected. The world system of self-vindication has no place in the church. Well, okay, what is the church's method of vindication? What is Jesus' method of vindication? Look at verse 15 one more time. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament, from Zechariah 9, uh, verse 9. I think we read that in our call to worship. Let me just read it again. Uh, This is what John quotes, Zechariah 9, uh, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It is clear Jesus here is making the statement, I am the Old Testament Messiah that is coming. I will enter into my city, my people, on a donkey. I'm the king. I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth okay great this king jesus will win and vindicate the world from all the wrongs and his people from all the wrongs but if you read the very next verse in jeremiah chapter 9 you'll see something really peculiar he doesn't do it in the way that the world does it look at zechariah chapter 9 verse 11 as for you also listen Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. In order for this king, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 9, to bring about vindication, he must first shed his blood, which happened on the cross. John is trying to show us a contrast here. Let's get back to the self-vindication desire that we have. It's it's a contrast between the world system of self-vindication and Jesus' view of vindication. Look at the crowd. They wanted vindication from the Romans. How? By gaining military power for themselves and, and taking power away from the Romans because they have power. They wanted self vindication through military power to destroy the Romans and make it right. But also look at the Pharisees in verse 19. They also wanted vindication. From who? From Jesus. This whole time, if you read the book of John, they hate Jesus because Jesus is continually taking people away from them. He's preaching the gospel. People are leaving the Pharisees and going to Jesus. And in chapter 11, we see that they want to kill Jesus because he was preaching the gospel that was against their, uh, their statements and their, and, and, and their worldview. They hated the fact, verse, uh, um, uh, our last verse in our passage today, they hated the fact that the world was going to Jesus. Because this means that they would have less religious power. They'd be below Jesus. They wanted to vindicate themselves from Jesus. And they wanted to to take power for themselves. See, whereas the crowd relied on military power for self-vindication from the Roman political invaders, the Pharisees relied on religious power for self-vindication 
from Jesus, who they viewed as a religious invader. The world's way of self-vindication is by gaining power for yourself so that you can make right the wrongs that's been done to you by your own power. Now contrast this with Jesus. In a world where everybody wanted more power for themselves so they can vindicate themselves, Jesus, humble, mounted on a donkey, being led straight to the cross, being led straight to the place where the worst wrong would be committed to him, where the worst slander would be said of him, where the worst abuse would be done to him. Yet he, the king of kings, who has all the power, laid it down. He laid down his right for retaliation. He kept his mouth shut as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Why? Because he had low self-esteem? Because he had no self-respect? And he didn't care being treated like a dirty rag? No. This wasn't a result of low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is allowing people to treat you badly because you don't feel like you deserve any better. That's not why Jesus went to the cross. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not have low self-esteem. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He chose to by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross was not a result of, nor an example of, low self-esteem. It is the result, an example of, a robust confidence to love others and choose to lay down your rights when necessary, even at your own expense, and not be so worried about justifying yourself because you know beyond a shadow of doubt that God will vindicate you. He has said, justice is mine not yours. Jesus chose to trust God and follow his word that he'll be vindicated and love others even to the point of death because he knows that the Father will vindicate him. This is the job of the church on earth. It is to exemplify a view of vindication that the world has no category of. We are not to behave like the world, always making sure we're vindicated. Rather, Be faithful to God. Love others at whatever cost because we know vindication will come. This is why Jesus was able to endure the cross. He entrusted himself to the Father. What was the cross? It was a place where the worst wrong was going to be done. The most hideous injustice would occur. The most worst slander would be put on God in flesh who was falsely accused and killed as a criminal. But yet he did not retaliate. He did not enter into some kind of panic frenzy but for the love of God and others. He kept his mouth shut and walked straight to the slaughter. slaughter. Why? Because he trusted in the Father's promise that the Son of Man, Luke 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. He knew, I will be raised. I will be vindicated. It will be made right. You want that power? See, the crowd didn't get this. The crowd wanted self-vindication. Look at verse 16. Even Jesus' disciples didn't understand it. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. If Jesus' closest disciples didn't get it, how can we expect that the crowd to get it? 
None of them got it. None of them were trusting in God for vindication. None of them were trusting in Jesus for vindication. But wait a minute, you might think. Weren't they shouting Jesus' name? Weren't they praising Jesus? Doesn't this mean if we're shouting Jesus' name and praising Jesus' name, doesn't that mean that we're automatically putting our hopes in Jesus? No, it does not. Let me show you why. Yes, they were praising Jesus' name. Yes, they were cheering and calling upon him. But what did the crowd want Jesus to do? Listen, what did the crowd want Jesus to do? They wanted Jesus to be modern-day Simon the Maccabee. Think about this. In other words, the crowd wanted Jesus to give them military power so that they can vindicate themselves from the Roman Empire. You see? It's a thin line and often goes unnoticed. On the outside, it looked like they were cheering on Jesus' name. On the outside, it looked like they were putting all their hope in Jesus, but they really weren't. They weren't relying on Jesus to vindicate them. They wanted Jesus to rally together a revolt and give them military power so that they can vindicate themselves from the Roman oppression. You see, they merely wanted Jesus to give them the tools so that they can vindicate themselves. At the end of the day, it's just a more churchy version of self-vindication. At the end of the day, they still trusted themselves for justice, not for Jesus. Their prayer was not what the church's prayer should be. Jesus, help me be faithful to your commands and love others in whatever situation because I trust that at the end of the day, I'll be vindicated. That wasn't their prayer. This was their prayer. Jesus, give us the power so that we can vindicate ourselves from those people out there that have wronged us. Does that prayer sound familiar to us? Is this not sometimes how we pray? God, if you can just elect a Christian president in this country, if... If you just give Christians that kind of power here in Indonesia, then, then the church will be vindicated. God, if you, if, if you just grew my business in such a way and give me power and authority, if you, if you just do that, then I'll show my family that they're wrong. And I'll vindicate myself from the lack of trust and hurtful words I've heard from them about my career. God, if you just give me a spouse... If you just give me a spouse, then I can vindicate myself from the terrible shame that this culture has wrongly placed on me for my singleness. It's just another churchy way of self-vindication. It's not wrong to have a Christian president. It's not wrong to want to have a good career. It's not wrong to want to have a spouse. But if you rely upon those things for your final hope of vindication, you'll never be able to love people well. If you place your final peace and hope for vindication of the church in a Christian government, you'll be triumphalistic. And you're not going to have peace until that happens. And I hate to pop your bubble, but you're not going to have peace for a long time. And you'll never be able to love those who care uh, and care for those who persecute you. Because you'll be too busy vindicating yourself from them. If you place your final hope for vindication in a career uh, uh, so that your family can know that you're actually worth something, you won't be able to love your family well. You're going to be too busy vindicating yourself from them. If you place your final hope in your spouse uh, uh, to vindicate yourself from the unjust shame that this culture has put upon singleness, you're not going to be able to love your spouse well. 
because you won't view them as someone to serve and sacrifice and love. You'll view them as your publicist, your PR rep. And their job is to show the world that you're worth something. But Jesus here, in contrast to everyone else in the story, loved others well, even unto a cross. Sacrificed, gave. He wasn't busy trying to defend himself, but instead in Gethsemane, he told Peter to say no to the sword. And he said yes to the Father. Let your will be done. Even if that leads me to the cross, let your will be done. Because I know that at the end, you'll vindicate me. And the kind of vindication that this world will see you bring about is infinitely more than any kind of vindication that this earthly body can muster up right now. So I will trust you. I'll follow you. I'll love others, even those who wrong me, even unto a cross. Because one day the world will get it and they'll finally understand, but that's your job, not mine. This is the life of the Christian man and woman. Not the one who asks God to give them power so that they can vindicate themselves, but one who obeys God, loves others, remains faithful, and says, come what may, I can brave it. I'll commit to love because he'll vindicate me. So take the world. Give me Jesus. It's a life that has power to be vulnerable, to seek to understand others before it demands to be understood. It's a life that can rest even when they're being wronged, who can love others, even those who persecute them, not because of low self-esteem, but because of an unwavering assurance that one day you'll be vindicated at the end. That's, that's the key, isn't it? You gotta have an unwavering assurance that you'll be vindicated at the end. If you don't, you're always gonna be tempted to self-vindicate. So how can we have such an assurance? Let's go to our last point. Point three. The assurance of our vindication. This is, this is the big question, is it not? How can you know for sure that God will vindicate you at the end? I mean, of course, Jesus can be certain about it. He's Jesus. He, he lived a perfect life. But me, how can I have the assurance that I'll be partakers of God's vindicating glory? How can I know um, uh, that I'll be one of those he vindicates at the end? Because I look at my life and I have a terrible track record. I self-vindicate like there's no tomorrow. I can't live up to the example that Christ has shown us in this passage. I can never do that. I can never trust God so much and not worry about self-vindication and, and love others even they persecute me. And you doubt whether or not, you don't know whether or not at the end you'll be vindicated. Well, you have to understand what the cross is. Why do you think Jesus rode into Jerusalem straight to the cross? Was the cross just a moral example for you to follow? And if you follow it well enough, you'll be saved? No. The cross is not primarily a moral example for you to follow. The cross is primarily a good news for you to receive. I will set you free from the wireless pit, Jeremiah 9, the king says. How? By my own blood. Jesus willingly went to the cross, not as a moral example for you to follow, but to declare to you a good news that in this you can be vindicated. That through this, vindication is yours. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're any better than anybody else. Because, but because the king of kings has laid down his life 
The king of kings have come down to die for your sins. He's come to take punishments for all your wrongs. Jesus was misunderstood all his life. Look at our passage today. His closest disciples in verse 16 didn't understand him. The crowd here misunderstood him. And soon, by the way, will crucify him. The Pharisees misunderstood him. The Roman government misunderstood him. The whole world, his whole life, the whole world has misunderstood him. He's been wrongly accused, but he bore the shame. He kept his mouth shut. He didn't retaliate and took on the cross. Why? For the Father's glory and for you. So that you may be vindicated. Until you receive this mercy, until you rest in the fact that the gospel is good news, your salvation is secured. You're free because the King of Kings laid his life for you. Before you have that, you're going to walk around life guessing whether or not you'll be vindicated because your vindication is going to be based on your moral performance. And it's going to be up and down. And, and if you don't have this assurance of salvation through the work of Christ on the cross, if this truth isn't real in your life, you'll never be able to rest. You'll walk around life trying to make sure that everyone gets it, everyone understands. You won't be able to love them, even those who wrong you. But the cross gives you the power to be able to do that because someone else has paid for your wrongs. And because of that, you now have a certain future vindication. The king will reign. He'll come back, not on a donkey, but in something much more glorious, and he will vindicate his people. If God is able to vindicate Christ and turn the worst wrong possible into the very thing that saves the world, could he not vindicate the wrongs that has been done in your life? Yes, he can. And yes, he will. So, seek justice, but never let that pursuit be so frantic that it takes away from showing mercy and love, even to those who wrong you. Because justice, vengeance is his. Our job is to be faithful to him, to love others, even unto the cross. This is the mark of the Christian, to love others as he has loved us because of an eternal security he's purchased for us. But you'll never be able to do that until the cross becomes real, until the cross becomes more than just a moral example for you to follow, but a good news that you receive and rest in. And I pray that it increasingly does because our ability to remain faithful to God and have peace despite all the wrongs being done in our lives and our ability to love others to whatever cost depends on it. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to want to take justice in our own hands it's so easy to want to vindicate ourselves, and it's so easy to use you as a mere tool to give us power so that we can vindicate ourselves. And it's so easy to, to do subtle self-vindications of, 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 of shutting people out, of, of not saying the things we know they, they need to hear, of, of avoiding them. Lord, let that not be the case for the Christian. Let the church not fall into the system of vindication that the world is in but let us look unto the Savior and know that before the throne of God above, before that justice seat, 
we have a strong and perfect plea. And he has called us his own through his blood. And because of that, the judge will bring justice. Give us, let that gospel now give us the power to rely on you for our vindication and the power to simply remain faithful and choose love and mercy above all else. For that is the way, that is the love you have exemplified for us to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand to our feet.